John 21 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, quote, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in the place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and one and the other at the feet. They said to her, quote, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, quote, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of God for the people of God. What's up, everybody? How are you doing? I, I am really exhausted from belting out all those songs. So I'm going to need some energy from, from you all to get through this. There is a Easter tradition where uh, the preacher, whoever's up here, says, Christ is risen, and everyone else says, Christ is risen indeed. So can we uh, be traditional together right now? All right. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Amen. It uh, really feels um, quite amazing to be here with you all on Easter. Uh, it's been a long time since we've been able to do this in person. Um, on Easter 2020, you might remember uh, the pandemic was um, barely a month old. We were all sort of coming to terms with the fact like this was going to be a while. Um, it was a time of great fear, anxiety, uncertainty. I found a picture of myself the first time I ever wore a mask. I took a photo. It was just 10 days before Easter. And I wore it to walk around the neighborhood by myself. It's just different, different times, you know. Um, and I preached that sermon alone in my living room to, a, to my phone on a tripod at 4 a.m. Felt very similar to how I feel right now, actually. Last year, 30 of us in 2021, 30 of us or so gathered at the beach. We walked in mass, in silence, uh, with headphones on. 
as we listen to this Easter service podcast that we had produced. Um, so just imagine, you put this up here, uh, just imagine like 30 folks, headphones on, not saying a word to each other, marching through <laughs> Foster Beach down to like Belmont, or that's not Belmont, Montrose, Montrose. Uh, people thought we were a cult. Um, and I don't blame them. We are not, though. I promise you, we get asked that all the time. We're not a cult. Uh, this, is, this is truly one of the most like um, uh, indelible memories I, I have and I hope to take with me to my grave one day. And now we're here in this what feels sort of like a trilogy, maybe a third Easter uh, in this series of a world that's come uh, undone, a world that is um, healing in many ways, a world that also continues to unravel in others. But I feel an immense sense of gratitude at the start of this third chapter to, to be here with you all. Do you feel that with me? Things are not uh, perfect by any means. If we only gave thanks during perfect times, we'd, we'd never really know what gratitude meant. So I'm gonna ask just, this is unlike me, but I'm gonna ask you, all of us, just to take a second to, um, to give thanks. And uh, you can look into each other's eyes if you like. You can feel the presence of living, breathing community surrounding you, um, be in the completely unique nature of, of presence Let's hold that together. Amen. By the way, if you're on Zoom, we, we hope to see you soon. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, the happy good stuff, let's talk about the death penalty. I've been spending much of my Easter reflection um, for reasons that I hope ultimately make sense, uh, thinking about the death penalty, right? Um, it's, to it's not totally out of left field. Um, execution by the state plays a major role in this Christian story, right? Uh, as barbaric as um, a graphically public crucifixion might seem to us today, we are not so evolved, unfortunately, that uh, we've eliminated such practices. And more importantly, we've not eliminated the sense of uh, retributive, retributive, sorry, retributive justice from our current society. And it seems like it should be a bigger deal. Um, from time to time, it has sort of risen up as sort of uh, the uh, topic of the activist day. Um, but these days, I don't hear too much about it, right? Um, nowadays, it's just maybe a story uh, that comes on the news from time to time where a person is scheduled, usually like this, is scheduled for execution, and many people um, believe them to be innocent. Right, and so activists get involved, celebrities get involved. Kim Kardashian just recently um, did some advocacy on this as well. Appeals are written to the highest levels of authority, governors, presidents, the Supreme Court. And in such cases as this, in which there is a sense of um, someone who's wrongfully been condemned, right, and they're innocent, it's easy for us to feel the rage at the violation of, of this sacred life, to clearly see the grotesque nature of the system that prioritizes Again, punishment, uh, retribution over rehabilitation, and death over life. Our eyes are opened uh, to the lunacy of giving such power to a system of fallible people, right? The vast majority of those who are strapped to a chair in this world, in America, are poor. The vast, vast majority. Uh, maybe all of them, as far as I can tell. Many of them are minorities who walk into uh, 
the execution chamber having passed through every systematically uh, racist uh, facet of our criminal justice system, right? To the uh, cops who picked them up, the overworked public defenders um, who are tasked with trying to save them, to the juries and the judges who render verdicts with extreme prejudice. But alongside these cases where people fight for the wrongfully accused, in some ways I'm more uh, thinking about the places where um, it's less complicated morally, perhaps. People who have certainly and definitely committed truly heinous crimes, the kinds that reading over a number of them this week really made me sick sometimes to, to, to read about. Right? It's harder to, make, uh, to try and make a case for mercy when confronted with something so evil. The writer uh, Elizabeth Brunig, she says this, and she wrote an essay about the execution of Alfred Bourgeois, man, a man who was convicted of uh, murdering his two-year-old child. Arguments against the death penalty tend to be abstract. Moral declarations about taking human life, conclusions from academic studies of legal procedures, dissections of prosecutions, or philosophical concerns about the limits of government power. But the arguments for the death penalty are visceral. And from there, she goes on to list some of the brutal ways um, this two-year-old was, was murdered. And it's here that we truly wrestle with this question about who um, ought to have power over life. Who ought to have power over life? Who has the power to affirm life to take it away? The event of resurrection, uh, this story in which Jesus presumably walks out of this tomb alive, um, are hard, it's hard to understand, let alone believe in. Um, we are distanced from those who testified to having witnessed it, from those who wrote the story that we uh, read today, many around the world are reading today. And we are distanced, of course, by some 2,000 years, but more so by a way of constructing reality that's very different than it was back then, a way of um, scrutinizing truth, right, where uh, we render resurrection something that's hardly worth celebrating. Science says it's not possible. The historians say it's not verifiable. Our culture also says it's not very important. Yet I, if I may offer my own uh, testimony uh, for consideration, uh, I have to confess that amongst the many struggles I have had and continue to have with this religion that I've uh, given my life to, resurrection is not one of them, strangely enough. Uh, that doesn't mean I know exactly how it happened or uh, what happened. It doesn't mean I could tell you um, that the body was actually flesh or that it was just a floating spirit or it was a shared vision uh, by traumatized people looking for hope. I couldn't actually even tell you what the exact implications are for us of this resurrection event, whether it means that we too will be resurrected, that there is an afterlife, or that we will be all together uh, like the resurrected Christ. I'm sorry if you came for those answers. There are not answers, there are unanswerable uh, questions. But resurrection, again, just this thing, this resurrection for me is very simple, it's very real, it's very easy. I have no great cognitive spiritual struggle with the story of God's power over death, of God's affirmation of life, 
because for whatever reason, it hits me in, in ways that bypass all my attempts to reason with it, to debate it, to deconstruct it. There is something about the vulnerability that is on full display when death and life meet in this battle of wills that transcends all the ways of trying to make sense of it. In Brunig's essay I mentioned earlier, she goes to witness the killing of Alfred Bourgeois. And she does this because she is uh, a Christian. She very much believes that we should abolish uh, the death penalty. She thinks killing in all its forms is wrong. And yet she also understands this impulse um, that we all have inside of us, that we want to see that eye for an eye, that we believe there's something just about that. And she details what she witnesses in that chamber. And she concludes like this. The idea of execution promises catharsis. The reality of it delivers the opposite, a nauseating sense of shame and regret. Alfred Bourgeois was going to die behind bars one way or another, and the only meaning in hastening it, as far as I could tell, was inflicting the terror and the torment of knowing that the end was coming early. I felt defiled by witnessing that particular bit of pageantry all of that brutality cloaked in sterile procedure. So much time and effort goes into making executions seem like exercises of justice, not just power. Extreme measures are taken at each juncture to convince the public and perhaps the ex executioners themselves that the process is a fair, dispassionate, rational one. It isn't. There was no sense in it. I can't make, it, make any out of it. Nothing was restored. Nothing was gained. There isn't any justice in it, nor satisfaction, nor reason. There was nothing, nothing there. You might have heard of one of the more famous uh, advocates of abolishing the death penalty, a Catholic nun, Helen Prejean. Prejean. Uh, she was, she wrote Dead Man Walking, the movie with, okay. Um, and so I, I really love her work. I was reading um, some of what she had written, and she says this, uh, this quote stuck out to me as she talked about what it's like for her um, in her time standing besides these men as they die in execution chamber. It's just pure presence, like when you're at the death of anyone. You're not making long speeches. There's nothing to say. You look at my face. I'll be the face of Christ for you. It's pure presence. And that's what it is. All right, so these testimonies of death, <laughs> this depressing conversation, may seem very uh, like the furthest thing from um, the celebration of life that is the resurrection, uh, that is Easter. But for me, they live uh, in real proximity to each other. Death and life, the nothingness that Brunig mentions, um, it's only counterpoint is the something of life, of resurrection, right? Uh, death and life is, is an old cliche, right? Two sides of the same coin. And I'm drawn to these stories. I'm uh, drawn to this confrontation with death in such a real way because it teaches me something about what life actually means, what life can actually be. If you encounter death in this stark way, you encounter life as well. A question, I think, comes to us that can only be answered 
um, again, not by all this, you know, thinking and figuring out and pontificating, but from something in your being, right? Something that's so deep in your bones, a question uh, that refuses skepticism or irony and detachment. Right? The question of, do you choose life or death? There's something almost eerie about uh, the Easter morning story for me. Um, compared to all the other events of Holy Week, it's like strangely quiet, strangely peaceful, a bit lacking in uh, fireworks and drama. On Palm Sunday, Jesus uh, enters the city of Jerusalem and there's huge crowds chanting his name and Hosanna and just, it's a big party, right? Um, the Last Supper is this sort of emotional gathering of Jesus with his closest friends. They feast, the wine flows. Um, if it was anything like the Monday Thursday dinner we just had a few days ago, it was also quite raucous perhaps and full of uh, spirits. Of course, the trial and the crucifixion is filled to the brim with uh, tension and horror and despair. And by comparison, Easter is this almost subdued thing, right? In all the Gospels, there are very few people present. Uh, so one woman, sometimes three, a couple of disciples show up. There's an angel, maybe two. One account mentions uh, unconscious guards being there, but for the most part, um, there are no agents of the state uh, involved in this story. Um, it's a very small, intimate affair. And it's worth being curious about why such a momentous event as this would take place under these circumstances. It would make uh, uh, for a more exciting story, I think, if you know the angels showed up and they showed up to Pilate, the Roman uh, governor, the crowds, the people who demanded Jesus' death, showed up to all the people that followed Jesus and were sad and crying somewhere and was like, show up at the tomb. Sunday, 6 a.m., it's about to go down. <laughs> and everyone goes there and they're waiting and then this, this you know, stone just like goes flying and everyone's like, oh shit. If I was Jesus' PR person, this is what I would have recommended. But instead we get this, again, almost serene pastoral image of a garden, uh, perhaps kissed with morning dew, the sun shines, the air is crisp, reminds me of those cold mornings going to elementary school as a young child. As I read the Easter story today, in this humble stillness of its vast reality-bending proclamation, I am reminded of, again, Sister uh, Prejean's words that I read for you earlier. I'm gonna read them once more. I'm gonna expand them a bit and include the um, initial question from the interviewer. So when you're with somebody as they're being executed or when you're in the place for witness, what are you trying to communicate with them after the point where they can actually hear you reading the scripture? All the words have been spoken in my faithfulness to them and in visiting them, they know my love and care for them and that I believe in their dignity. It's all presence then. It's just pure presence like when you are at the death of anyone. You're not making long speeches. There's nothing to say. You look at my face. I'll be the face of Christ for you. It's pure presence and that's what it is. What can move us to choose life over death? I don't think it's a uh, big drama and big spectacle, nor is it grand theories and reasons. It is really just to look upon the face of resurrection, a face that transcends death and judgment, 
that stands by us in pure presence, that draws out of us an answer to that question, I choose life, life abundant, life courageous, life enduring. Damn you, Easter. <laughs> A life that can never stray so far as to lose sight of God. So I ask that we see that face, feel that presence, but just as important, maybe more importantly, as Sister Prejean has been, uh, has devoted her life to, we too can be that face, right? We can be that presence. I think when we do those things, when we see those things, we do those things for each other, we'll know that the choice has already really been made for us that we choose life. Amen.